The following sermon is brought to you by ThePreachersVault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. Philippians chapter 1, we are going to continue there around about verse 9 in just a moment. Uh, there are a few outlines up here that you can pick up if you haven't gotten that. We're not specifying each individual point of the outline, but I promise you the outline will be uh, something that you can use as a tool, a handy tool to, when you're studying on your own, when you're going back and examining as I know that you do in your personal Bible studies. It'll give you something as kind of a guide. Uh, where you can be looking for some highlights in this text. This is a book about joy. It's about rejoicing. That's the main point of the book. It is, of course, written by the Apostle Paul, and he says such, beginning in the first verse as we read down to where we're going to be tonight. It says, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he adds in verse 3, and I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy. And that's the first time you'll see the word joy. It'll be repeated six more times in the text. Rejoice 11 times. Uh, going on in verse number five, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that that which hath begun a good work in you will perform it Unto the day of Jesus Christ. And of course, I think that is a reference to the second coming of Christ. And it is also, obviously, Paul describing the work that God continues to do and the good work that he's doing through the means of the gospel. So, kind of one of the reasons why the gospel and the preaching of the gospel and the sharing of the gospel, however you want to word that, is very important. Obviously, it brings us to salvation, the learning and obedience to it. Uh, but it's something that was began at one point and continues to work. Verse 7, he says, Even as it is meet for you, that is, it is my right or my opportunity, even as it is meet for you, we got somebody trying to get in the back door struggling really hard right now. Yeah. Thank you. Even as it is meet for you to think of this of you all because... I have you in my heart, and we kind of went over that phrase, in so much as in my bonds, in defense and the confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. And of course, when Paul is describing having them in his heart, we know that they were dear to him. That's what he's already said just up above this. And we already know that he appreciates the work that they do. And they have shown that on several different occasions, evidence in this text in the text that you find and learn about this congregation from Acts chapter 15, the latter, and chapter 16 especially, uh, they were some of the ones, he'll mention across the page here down around verse 13, they were definitely some of the ones that had supported Paul, not just in their thoughts and prayers, but probably and most likely even financially and physically they had done much for him. And he is appreciative of that in, in spite of the fact he is in his bonds. Or he is in bonds, he's imprisoned. And so verse 7, to read that part of it again, even as is meet for you, me or my right to think of you all because I have you in my heart in so much as in my bonds and in the defense, we're going to see this word later on tonight, in the defense or in the answering, giving answers of the gospel and the confirmation of the gospel 
of all you are partakers. And so there's a lot that is dealt with, particularly in this first chapter. It'll be mentioned a few more times throughout the book about the fellowship, the camaraderie, the partisanship, if you will, that Paul has with these brethren. And a lot of the emotions, a lot of the feelings, and especially a lot of the labor, the work that he does, he understands that they do the same. And so when we carry on as we are, 2,000 some odd years removed from that, when we uh, take the gospel to the world or when we use the gospel for our own advantage in, in our own studies and our own learning, we're fellowshipping Paul in the same and likewise fellowshipping God, obviously. He goes on and says there that they were partakers of this grace, verse 8, for God is my record. That is, I'm testifying on behalf of God. He would do the same for me. He would testify on my behalf of how greatly, this is the first word we see this next word, the first time, we see the word I. Again, that word I found 65 times in 45 verses. Paul says, for it is my record, I long after you in the bowels or the affections, is another way of saying that, in Jesus Christ. Why is that, Paul? He says, verse 9, and this I pray that, you, that your love abound more and more, if uh, more and more, in knowledge and in judgment. So verse 9 is kind of where we're going to pick up. Uh, mention a few things about it. First of all, notice, and we may have discussed this, I can't recall, but notice the word abound right there. The idea is there's something that continues to exceed itself. Uh, when, just when you thought it had gone as far as it could and it grown, in this case it's obviously talking about knowledge and judgment and, and the love that is mentioned there, but just when you thought that had reached this maximum point, its, it's pinnacle, it continues to grow. It continues to get larger and larger and to expand itself. As a matter of fact, the word abound right here, not to get too Greeky or geeky with it, but the word abound here is in what you would know in the Greek language as the perfect present or the present perfect tense. And that is the idea that it had a beginning, but it really doesn't have an end. It just continues to go on and to go forward and to go forward and grow and grow. Now, obviously, what Paul is saying here is not the fact that unconditionally and without any effort of theirs, these things are going to happen. But he is saying here that he desires this for them. He says, this is my prayer. And so of everything that Paul may have prayed for or concerning, as again, preceding verses, he's already mentioned, remembering them in his prayers and such, the main purpose and the main focus of all of that is that he wants the brethren here in Philippi to have a love that continues to grow, continues to bound, particularly in knowledge and in judgment. And of course, I tell you oftentimes, I always do this when I do, I mark in my Bible certain ways to denote certain words that I, I want to remember to emphasize or, or to try to continue to look into myself. And some of the biggest words, not in new uh, characters here, but some of the biggest words in this verse are the simple words I, or the letters I-N. Paul says, I want your love to continue to abound specifically in knowledge, we'll mention that, and also in judgment. Now, what I'm assuming here, and I, I couldn't prove this if I tried, and matter of fact, that's my disclaimer, I'm not trying to, but what I'm assuming for myself 
in examining this text is that either A, Paul saw in them that this needed work, that there was something about them that where these two areas, just generally and maybe even specifically, they had a shortfall, or they had some place where they were not fulfilling themselves completely, or Paul just knew that in general and overall, these were things or advancements that every person needed to make. Now, whether you see that or not makes no difference because we, again, 2,000 some odd years removed, there's no doubt about it for me. That I need to grow my love and particularly my love in the areas of my knowledge and also in judgment. Now, what is knowledge? Well, knowledge is like the root word. It's to know something. And in this case, as a matter of fact, the Greek word that backs this up, where we're reading King James speak knowledge, is a Greek word that has that root sound to it, epigonosko. That is knowledge that grows and grows and grows. You say, well, how would that fall out, Paul? The same way that they would abound in love. The more their love grows, not just for the brethren, but more especially here, the more their love grows for God, the more knowledge they seek to find. Yes, absolutely. Continue to be educated by the gospel. Absolutely. And it, it's kind of a relationary, I almost made up a, I'm going to make up a word, a relationary ship type thing. It, it's the idea such as, let's, let's suppose, and, and I think I'm looking around really quick, everybody in this room could, could have said this about their past and hopefully continues to say it, where you meet someone, a potential date or spouse or whatever, and as you continue to conversate, as you continue to build that relationship, what are you trying to find out? You're trying to find out who they are. You're wanting to know them. You're wanting to get to know them. It's a phrase that we use. And you continue to dig. And as long as you have a, an affection, we'll just bring it down to that. If you have an affection or you have an interest in that person, that's exactly what you continue to do. We continue naturally to want to know and to know more and to know more. And some of the things that we learn about ourselves just in human relationships, we're, we're surprised by. Some things turn us off. Some things make us more attractive or more curious, whatever you want to call that. When it comes to God, obviously, the more we know, the more we can grow. And the farther in our advancement toward God we can get, and the more knowledge that we have, that epigonosco just it grows and it grows and grows. So like the abounding of the love, it's also the case he wants them to abound in knowledge. Now the next part of this, and we've read it a few times, he said abound yet more and more in knowledge and in judgment. Now, I realize that when you read across the, the word judge, judge or judgment, uh, not just for us, but for everybody in the loose, loosely given religious world or even in the world itself, a lot of times the first thing people might think about in judgment is, well, you know, there's judge not that you be not judged and you're not the judge of me. And this judgment here is a judgment that is used in light of making choice, making decisions. It's a righteous judgment. It is the fact that these things need to be uh, informed, and this word specifically means to have insight and perception. 
And so once there is a love that abounds for God, for the gospel, in this case it could be even for the brethren, Paul to them and them to Paul, as that love continues to abound, so the knowledge abounds. And as the knowledge abounds, the next building block is that the judgments can abound. And the judgments can grow. And so they continue to perceive more and more. And sometimes perceptions, as far as we would use that term, sometimes perceptions can be, can be off base. They can be unsubstantiated. They can be without evidence but not in the case where it's built on knowledge, where the growth is following the natural or the right process, probably even not the typical or normal, but the right process, then that perception can be correct. And so it's the idea of allowing what we see and the judgments that we make to allow that information to be available. Then he adds in verse 10, he says that, anytime I see the word that, I I put the words in order that in my mind. Again, that's just coming using the speech here, the language. He says, that or in order that ye, ye all, may approve things that are excellent. So why is it that their love needs to abound and particularly abound in the areas of knowledge and of judgment so that they can use what they have in order that it would, they might be able to approve the things that are excellent and that you may be sincere and without offense, again, until or till the day of Christ. Now, a few terms right here that, that come off the page, at least for me, that you may approve. Of course, the idea is there that you've got the ability to, to put it to the test, to make a judgment by it. The word approve there, at least in the way it was, <sighs> It would be kind of like, and I'm not saying that we typically do this, but you, you've seen this happen. It's kind of like someone, especially a hundred or so years ago, that would take in a coin, maybe a supposed gold coin, and they bite it. Just, just, to, just to check it out. Just see, you know, if it feels right. If it, I don't know if they were tasting what they were doing, but just, just to see if it's what it ought to be. And he says, you need to be able to approve things. You need to be able to test things to the extent of being able to stand back and say, okay, this is, this is what's right, this is what's proper, this is what's good, and this is not. And that comes along naturally for us as we grow, as we abound in knowledge, as our perceptions increase, and as we practice the things that we have. Uh, one of the things I've, I've noticed in my life, and, and I don't want to take this too far, but it, it seemed obvious to me, is the more I use what I know, the more I learn. Now, now, you could look at that from the side of, you know, we forget things, we get out of practice, but the more I use what I know, the more I've learned in the past. And that, that's even true biblically. You know, someone comes and, and says, you know, I don't understand this passage and I don't understand this context. And, or, or they might say about a text or context, you know, I just, I don't think that's what that means because I want to I live this way. And I, I want to, sometimes, not always, they're difficult texts. They're hard passages to understand. They're passages we'll never understand. But sometimes, probably the majority of times that I've witnessed in my life, I'm not understanding this because I didn't get the concept before it. Because I didn't accept the concept before it. Um, I don't want to tell too much, but two, several of the people in the room already know this. Cameron struggled uh, the beginning of the year with, 
what's he taking? What in the world is that called? Geometry. Uh, because they missed so much school last year and with some health condition, he missed so much. He, he missed something there. Because Stevens came over and got him on the basic concepts, and now, you know, he has one of the highest averages in the class and seems to be a natural. Not that that perfectly applies, but in order to approve things, you've got to have a basis by which you can judge them. So if I'm going to say, okay, this is what I need to be doing. This is what's right. I've got to have some idea of what God said on the matter so I can make the judgments. And he says that you may, or in order that you may approve things that are excellent. That is, not that they're all great. Of course, they're from God, but the things that are set by God. And that you may be sincere and without offense. And the, my, the idea of the word sincere, and I've got errors drawn between the two. They're not the same word. But the idea of something being judged as sincere was supposedly used in the beginning of these things, or at the time of writing, supposedly used where someone would take a clay pot or a jar or something maybe that they might find in a shop or in the marketplace or whatever, and they would take that and set it out in the sun. And sometimes the vendors would do this. The people working in the marketplace supposedly would do this. They would, they would set their pottery out in the direct sun, because a lot of times there were frauds, there were fakes, there were people that took pottery that had cracks and imperfections and filled them with wax and other materials, and by setting it in the sun, those things would melt away. And he says you need to be able to prove those things, you may be, that you may be sincere and without offense. And the word out, without offense is the idea of judgments won't stick. It's the handles won't hold to be without offense to the day of Christ. How is that possible? Well, it's all a building block of things, verse 9 to 10 and now to 11. He says, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and the praise of God. That word filled there, we mentioned it several times when we were studying through the book of Colossians. The first time it was found in Colossians, it was Colossians 1 and verse 9. The word field comes from the word playru. At least that's what it looks like. P-L-A-Y-R-O-O. Playru. And the, the idea was it was generally a Gnostic catchphrase. The Gnostics would go around and through their teaching and through their, you know, trying to convince people of their ways, they would try to convince people that they knew it all. And that's what the word Gnostic anyway means. It means a know-it-all, at least a, a supposed know-it-all. And oftentimes as they would go around on any subject, religiously or what have you, in Paul's day, time of writing, they would try to push upon people that I've got a higher knowledge. You may know all that you know from Scripture, uh, from the prophets, whatever, biblically, but I've come to know in my life through some type of experience or through some type of uh, um, mystic way a better way to know Jesus, or a better way to know God. And so when Paul used it over in Colossians 1 and verse 9, he used it kind of in a almost a derogatory spin of a sense to say, look, I want you to be filled, but to be filled with what God has, has set for you. Now forget about these folks that are teaching, and we'll get to that in the later verses. Forget about these people that are teaching something that's false, something that is uh, of strife or envy. Fill yourself with God. 
And right here, it's a very similar statement. He says, you've been filled completely to the brim with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ. Now, the fruits of righteousness, whether or not there's a direct connection right there, you can look to Galatians chapter 5 and uh, verse 22 beginning there to talk about the fruits of the Spirit, probably the same idea or similar idea. I think the fruits of the Spirit at least could be lined up as some, if not the majority of the righteous things could be built upon the fruits of the Spirit, maybe not existing in, but built in them. And he says he wants them to be filled. But he says that is only possible by, or you could imply the word through, oftentimes you can take the word by and through and turn them as well. It means through the power of Jesus Christ. You can't be filled, or I couldn't be filled, or they couldn't be filled. Paul wasn't ever filled by the fact that he was just a good fellow, that he was intelligent, that he had had the pedigree that he's going to describe uh, in other places. That wasn't what got Paul to where he was. It was the fact that he had been filled by Jesus Christ up into the point or up into the end of the glory and praise of God. And so what we learn, what we know, going back up to verse 9, the abounding love that brings the knowledge and brings the judgment and brings the ability to test and approve that which is excellent, to prove ourselves that we're sincere, that we're without offense within ourselves, that brings us down to the point of the, having the opportunity at least to be filled with the fruits of righteousness. Verse 12. He says, But I would... That ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happen unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. In verse 13, he tells us what some of those things are, inclusive of being in the bonds. This will be easy if, if, if you're following down the trail in, inside of this little mind, but think about an Old Testament character that is an illustration of something that started out as being what seemed to be terrible and disastrous, but ended up for God's will. Very quickly, first thing, Joseph. And him, and him even by Genesis chapter 50, even telling his, his own brothers, his brethren, the things that you did to me for evil intent, God meant that for good. The, the, the fact that they tossed him into the pit and the fact that they drew him out of the pit, sold him into slavery, that they didn't even care or know what happened to him. The fact that they lied and told his father that he had been killed by a wild animal and the fact that his father had lived all those years assuming that to be true and having supposed evidence with a shredded bloody jacket that that was the case and the fact that they had to go through this famine and all of them struggled through it, save Joseph and the house of, of Potiphar and such, and then they finally come up to an end where they're continuing to wish evil on him, you can assume, but when they're desperate, they find fear because they understand now this is, this is Joseph. He, he controls our, our entire lives. He controls whether we live or die, whether we starve. And they're afraid of that. Joseph says God meant it for good. The people that had imprisoned Paul, of course, 
brought that out several times, what happened the latter part of 15, early part of 16. Paul goes in, casts out a demon, tries to help someone, tries to assist them, but because they were people that were making profit off of this demon-possessed woman, they, they attacked Paul, and they had Paul thrown into prison. And you can assume every one of those people that were a part of that, you know, had lost their livelihoods, which was sinful in what they were doing to begin with, which was wrong toward the person and, and all the abuse that they had probably committed toward her. They're probably standing outside the prison, not literally, but in some sense, he's standing out of the prison saying, Nana and Boo Boo, I got you. I mean, you, you, there, there's Paul. You know, Paul was all this. He was an apostle. He was such a great preacher, such evangelist. But he's in prison. We stopped him. Paul said, well, the things that have occurred in this part of my life, they're for the furtherance of the gospel. Now, I don't know exactly what had happened here. I couldn't, couldn't prove this. But I've, I've come to, as I've continued to delve into the book for myself and, and dig into that, I have come to assume, I knew know that this happened to an extent, that this fella, let me see where it was, I, I didn't... Uh, I didn't look earlier, over into chapter 2 somewhere. Not a big deal, but you'll find a, a man named Epaphroditus. 25, chapter 2, 25. And, and I suppose that necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and companion and labor and fellow soldier, but your messenger, and he ministered to my wants. What, what can we see in that? We can read into that that Paul tells Epaphroditus to go back. He probably, suggestion, he probably was one of the deliverers of, of this letter, taking it back to the brethren at Philippi. But apparently they had sent, or he had voluntarily decided to go. He had come, and is stated here specifically, and ministered to Paul. I really think what happened, and again, my disclaimer, just me thinking things probably too far. I think what happened is the brethren at Philippi loved Paul as much as he loved them. And at some point, whether they were in an assembly or just to talk among the people, or whatever they did, somebody sat back and said, you know what? I wonder how Paul's doing. And somebody spoke up and said, well, I heard he's in prison. Well, man, a lot. What, what is that going to do to his work? How could he be? I mean, is he okay? And at some point, Paphroditus either chose or was chosen to go down and minister to Paul, probably walked in and said, Paul, yeah, what, what's happened? Why are you here? I think there were a series of questions that may have been asked of Paul. Paul, in this letter, is replying back to some of them, and probably one of their real concerns was, what's going to happen to the gospel? If the, if the one who first brought it to our region of the world and the one who taught it and the one who had us to learn it and know it, if he's in jail, if he's in prison, what's going to happen to the gospel? Paul gives an answer. He says right here, being in bonds, being in the place where I am, it's for the furtherance of the gospel. The word furtherance in some translations uh, it's actually the words put in that place, same word, although we don't use furtherance as much, the progress or the progression of the gospel. Me being in, in prison, in jail right here, 
that has actually brought about the progression of the gospel. Now, we mentioned, I think maybe on last week, and I remember Andy's the one that spoke up and said uh, something to that extent, that, you know, when someone was, was beaten or thrown into prison or, or even at times murdered for the preaching of the gospel, every drop of blood that was shed, that carried the gospel that much farther because people were not going to die for a lie in general. And so by these people taking, like Paul did and all the other apostles as well, by them taking beatings out in the street, they didn't beat these people. I mean, typically they didn't beat these people in the back room of an alley somewhere. They took them right out in the middle of the square, Rome especially. They had a place that was set in the center of the city just for flogging people, just for, because they wanted everybody to know. And Paul said, the things that have come to me, which would include those beatings, which would include the way he was mistreated and abused, which would include him being in prison, which eventually would include, include his death, although he's not writing of that, I don't think, here. But he said that's been for the furtherance or for the progression. Another word you could insert there, and it's more literal, for the advancement of the gospel. You know, you realize that happened with Jesus as well. The Jews assumed that if they could just get him crucified, if they could get him killed, that'd be the end of the story. I mean, people might remember him for a few months, a few years, but eventually that would, they'd move on from that. His influence would not be there. We're not living in the best of days as far as people being willing to be faithful Christians, children of God. We're living as a remnant just as God's people have always lived. But isn't it mind-boggling that 2,000 some odd years removed that anyone would even know the name of Jesus at this point, let alone be willing to, to serve Him, to follow Him, to, to do His every bidding as we do. It's because of the fact the gospel has been advanced. It's been farthered and will continue to. So one of the best shining influences you and I have, and I'm not, I'm not asking for someone to come in and beat the tar out of me in the parking lot either over this, but one of the best advancements we've ever had is when we endure trial, troubles, hard days. It may be struggles from, from someone being ill, from someone being sick, from losing a relationship, loss of a loved one. Whatever struggle, whatever trial we go through, when we are able to stand through that and, and to put on, put on the face and to, to be sincere, word mentioned up above this really, to put on the face of saying, you know what, what whatever's happening in my life, God's got me. God's behind me. The things that are working in my life, you can back across the page here, uh, were, were done in the sense that they were being able to perform into the day of Christ, verse 6. There are people who are influenced by that. There are people, and I've heard the statements, I've you know, seen it happen in so many lives. Somebody will say, well, you know what? I, I had my doubts about God until I saw so-and-so. And I saw the way they handled this. And I saw the way that they stood strong during that. And that impacts other people. And the gospel, of course, is the root and the source of that. And he says that specifically. But I would have you to understand. You need to understand this. You need to know the things which happened to me have befallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. The word rather, again, implying what I'm trying to assume, myself at least, they've asked about it. He said, rather than what you're thinking, 
that this is damaging the gospel? It's not. It has caused it to be fathered. And he expands on that in verse 13. He says, so that in my bonds, in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. What are you saying, Paul? Paul says, me being in prison and the gospel being progressed and advanced has gone to the point that my bonds are now manifest in every place I go. Now again, what is the beginning, you know, the first thing that was said about this congregation, about these people, about this group, way back over in Acts 16? What, how did this all start? Well, it started with the Macedonian call, chapter 15. And then it continued on with Paul being placed into prison. And while in prison, what was Paul doing? Well, we, we know for a fact, by verse 25 or so, he's singing praises unto God and praying. And he's impacting and influencing the people that were around him. But what Paul had been doing the whole while, and he's mentioning it here, basically, he's continuing to teach. And Paul, and this was mentioned last week, Paul was not just willing to teach, you know, kings and and. Uh, all, you know, everybody of, of high clout and importance, Paul would teach anybody. He didn't care where, if he pulled him out of a ditch, that's, that's who he would teach. And he treated no one any differently in doing such. Now the King James says, and I've tried to examine this pretty closely this week, I don't think it has a lot of bearing one way or another, but I do want to share it. It says, so in my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace." This is most likely, a few translations have this as well, a reference to the, not the building, obviously. Not the fact that Paul said, well, you know, I made it into the palace. You know, I made it to the White House or, you know, whatever we would equate with that. I made it to, uh, where does the queen live? Any? I don't know where she lives, over somewhere in a big place. I made it to the throne. It's not a specific thing about the building, obviously, or anything such as that. It references likely, that's a disclaimer again, something to do with the imperial guard. Now we do know that the jailer was a part of the guard, if you will, not necessarily the imperial guard, but the jailer was a person who had connections with influential people. The imperial guard, and I, I found this interesting in digging through it, they had so much influence. This would be like the the secret service agents that work directly with the president every day or his support staff, what have you. They had so much influence that the Imperial Guard was in charge at one point up into, and I forget the name of the emperor, it stopped then, but up into one point, they were in charge of selecting the emperor, of deciding who was up next. You know, we've had all this controversy two or three times in the last four or so years about the uh, Supreme Court choices. The justices were placed on the Supreme Court and one group, you know, didn't want them being picked by this current administration and, and all this back and forth. Why? Because that influences years ahead. Those choices influence things far ahead. Paul says here, basically, I've been, to, I've been in this place in my bonds. Christ is made, made manifest, meaning Christ is brought to light. 
People are seeing the light. People are understanding who Christ is, even to the place of the palace, even in front of the people that, that have influence. Now, I'm not saying this is how things worked out, obviously. But you imagine if Paul, if, and we do know he spoke to some important people. He went before Augustus. He went before, uh, come on, Acts, man, uh, Felix. Before several very important, you know, governors and such as that. But even if he hadn't done that, what if Paul got to all of the right-hand men to the president? or to the emperor, and converted every one of them. And so now, it didn't matter if he got to speak to this, this important fellow or not, he'd spoken to all of them, converted all of them, now they're surrounding him every day, and given that imperial guard information, potentially they had a choice to choose the next of these men. Yes? Yep. You got a fight on the school grounds and everybody in the next county knows about it by next period. That's exactly right. And so his his influence was just growing every day as much as they were trying to to put his fire in a in a sense out. Now, verse 14, I think ties to it. Again, I've got arrows drawn uh, from 12 to 13 and 13 to 14 specifically. Not just the palace. Or the, or the people in the palace. Matter of fact, I better read the last phrase of verse 13. It says, So in my bonds in Christ are manifest in the palace and in all other... Look at the word places. You've got an English translation in front of you, the word places. What's different about the word places? It's italicized. Which as we always mention, you have to understand if it's italicized, it's put there as an assistant, as a help. Uh, something that's supposed to clarify our understanding. But we also have to remember the flip side of that coin is that if the word is in italics, it wasn't a Greek original word there. And so it may or may not be useful. In this case, uh, you do with uh, your translation what you want. I put a very faint, I wrote it very light, as light as I could with my pen. I put an X across the, the idea of other places because I really think he's talking about other people. He's not only been to the palace and influenced them, he's influenced as well and taught other people. Why do you do that? Verse 14. And many of my brethren in the Lord, and we'll have to come back to this verse next week, very deep. And many of my brethren in the Lord waxing confident in my bonds and much more bold to speak the word without fear. And so, as, as Paul has been placed into prison, eventually, you know, how he got there, the casting out of the demon, causing of the uproar, all of such, he ends up in prison, supposing, most would assume, the end of that. His influence has grown, and now the confidence of the brethren, brethren is waxing strong. So we'll pick up in verse 14 next week. I appreciate your input, and... Uh, Look forward to the next few verses. Thank you.